I've got two questions for you. One, how are you running your race? And two, what is the next big thing you are looking forward to in life? You know, there's a lot of stuff that we look forward to, and for different reasons. Sometimes we want to just get our taxes done so we can be done with that and move on with our life. Sometimes we have a big project that we need to complete for work or maybe even for school. Other times we have big events going on, like a wedding, or other things that go on in the family, like a birthday. We have goals that we kind of mark out in our mind, and we get really excited looking forward to something, and then when that's over, our mind starts hungering for something else. You see, God made our bodies that we must pursue something. We're thinking creatures. We're not rocks. We're not just sitting around. We appreciate beauty, and we need goals to aspire towards. But one of the things we also have to recognize is that we are fallen creatures, and not everything that we aspire for is actually good and godly. And one of the things which is really destructive about our modern world is down at the very foundation of how we think, the very core principles of how we see the world around us have largely been replaced with ungodly things. Rather than starting with the biblical worldview, again, we're fallen creatures, we don't naturally wake up with all of Scripture and Christianity just right there in our mind. No, we have to learn these things, and our, our world is really positioned, our, our young people and even those of us who are adults, to be separated from godly living. And our public sphere has been designed where godly living is not really permitted in the public sphere anymore. It's become something which actually takes quite a bit of effort. You're going to be in friction with the world. But not only that, we have seen that for a lot of people, the upward aspirations that God wants us to live with, you know, the goals that God wants us to look forward to, the goals which cause us to run our race well, have been replaced by fake virtues, by things which are not really as sincere as they purport to be. And back to my very first question about how you are running your race. You know, my brother, he has a Corvette, and it's been totally built for the track. It's a C5, and he takes it up to do autocross and all sorts of other stuff. And I've gone up and I've raced with him before. I've even taken my, my Mini up there. And one of the things that I have found is that there are a lot more cars at the beginning of track day or autocross than there are at the end. You know, they overheat. They bend tie rod ends. Some of them get wrecked. Sometimes they break down in all manner of ways. But there are a lot more cars that begin their races than there are cars that finish there. And beyond that, there are a lot more that start well than there even are those that finish well. Some of them make it to the finish line, but not very well at all. And in life, how we are structured, how we are prepared, the things which are foundational to who we are really makes a big difference. You know, just using the illustration of the race, my brother's Corvette, which he works on quite a bit, and I've worked on it a bit myself, you know, having a proper clutch in it makes a big difference. Having the suspension tuned for the track makes a big difference. Having the roll cage in there to get it stiff, it makes a big difference. You can't just go out and expect to run at speed on the heat of summer without making preparations. You've actually got to put like a new oil cooler in the car and stuff like that to keep from overheating. It's not just so easy to go out and win a race or to even run a race well. And for those living in our day and age, we live in an era of untruth, where rather than having good things and godly things and truthful things be at the foundation of how we think and operate, we have untruthful things at the foundation of how we operate. And last week, so this would be not this Sunday sermon that I preached yesterday, but 
two Sundays ago, I preached a message and I really felt terrible about it. I got done with, with the service and I thought, you know, praise be to God that it's not just about me because the, the scriptures, just reading them did a lot more than anything I could do to give some sort of exposition against them. And I really felt bad about the way things were going. However, when I got home, something changed my attitude about the entire day. There was a young man who had come to church and he's he's only about 20, 21 and he doesn't have a lot of experience working on cars, but he's interested in doing that. And he came over and he had a problem where his speedometer wasn't working. And I went out and looked at his car with him after service and we discovered that it was some sort of electronic issue and that the wiring harness itself was messed up in his engine bay. Well, after I got home and got settled, I got a text message and he had fixed this problem in his car. He had corrected the wiring issues in his engine bay. If you know anything about modern cars, that's a pretty big achievement. They're not that easy to work on. There's not much room and they're awful and you don't even always know what's going on. And after that, there was another lady at my church who's in her 80s and I got a picture of her mowing her lawn. Her daughter surprised, uh, took a surprise picture of her mom mowing her lawn. And when I saw that, I was moved by both of these images. Because whether it's the young man who is actually fixing his car or the lady in her 80s who's out mowing her lawn, these are both moments of upward aspirations for people who are looking to run their race better than just how our modern world would have us run. Our modern world has replaced upward aspirations with a lot of superficial stuff, with virtue signaling. You know, if you want to feel meaningful in life, then get online, attach yourself to some large social cause, and that will make your life better. It doesn't. It doesn't at all. Going outside, actually taking care of your property, solving problems in your car and having that achievement, that actually does something to honor how God designed us to be. Now, cars, lawns, lawnmowers, all of these things are material items that will pass away. But how we relate to them actually matters. God designed us that we would be motivated to have high aspirations, that we would run our races well, where our minds would be dedicated to pursuing goodness in all areas of life, whether it be our our automobiles, our homes, our marriages, our relationships. They're all meant to be of upward aspirations, to have some grit in them, to look to do excellent and wonderful things. Today, we're going to be talking about how real holiness is not an act. Because a lot of people in our world, they may not even look at themselves as running a race before the King of Kings. They may be either negligent of that fact or ignorant of that fact, whether because they've never heard anything about God or because they're rebelling against God. It doesn't really matter, but we're all running a race before God, and we all should be looking forward to doing good things in the world around us. Today, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 12, which is the widow's might. We're going to be looking at a widow who offers a few small copper coins, which amount to a penny, and we're going to be comparing her to some people who don't actually have goodness in life, even though they appear as if they would. So let's open up in prayer, and then we'll get to our message. Gracious Heavenly Father, I ask that you bless us today, that as we come to study this scripture, that we would be moved to appreciate that which is good, true, and beautiful. Let us have upward aspirations, and let us do good things in life. We ask all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen. So God cares how we relate to the world around us. One of the, the James Bond movies that came out about, I think it was GoldenEye, so that would be in the mid-90s. The, 
the guy who's playing the character Q is told by James Bond, he says, ah, you look, or you're smarter than you look. And his response to that is, I would rather be smart than look smart. He, he has some snide comment that he says in response to that. It's better to, to be smarter than you look than to look smarter than you are. Well, in our modern world today, a lot of people's goals, their aspirations, their framework for how they run their race has been replaced with things that look more virtuous than they actually are. So in Mark chapter 12, verse 38, we find people living this way where they look more virtuous than they really are. Mark 38, or Mark 12, verse 38 reads as follows. As Jesus taught, he said, Be wary of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the best seats and synagogues in places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearances say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And you know, we often forget that we're fallen creatures who deserve to be utterly destroyed for our sins. Like this is something which scripture tells us about. We deserve to be totally destroyed. All of us do. I myself, you know, I've been, done a lot of foolish stuff. Even as a pastor, I've done foolish stuff. And by the grace of God, I have not been smote. And God actually wants to use us. And we can be very grateful for God's love. But here in this passage, we find that there are people who they've got the virtue signal down. They've got the virtue scam down great. You know, as far as the public sphere goes, they've got all the credentials, they're the scribes, they have their long robes, they're dressed well, they have the right connections so they can be invited to all the right banquets and they can have all the right seats. When it comes time to worship in synagogue, they've got the best seat there as well. You know, they've got all the superficial characteristics down to make themselves look like holy and righteous people. Better yet, they're scribes. They can probably quote scripture like crazy. They can probably talk about doctrine and the law to levels that most ordinary widows could not. However, what we find is that those ordinary widows might actually have more faith. They might actually have more virtue in their heart. And they might be more right with God than those who have all the right biography, all the right histories, and all the right reports. Going to verse 41 in Mark chapter 12, it reads as follows. Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. And then a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth but a penny. He then called his disciples and said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who were contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put everything she had, all she had to live on. Now what's beautiful about this is this widow is running her race well. And we don't know a lot about her. We don't get her full biography. We know a lot less about her than we do about those scribes who are mentioned in the passage before this. The passage before this tells us a lot about them. It tells us what they look like, what they do, what their social circles are. It tells us, you know, the full biography. Here with this widow, we know she's a widow and she doesn't have much money. And we know she put that little bit of money, all of it, all of her livelihood into the treasury. Now, this widow, her goal... And the only goal that we see specified here is to give to God. It's the only goal that we see here. 
You know, you look back at those scribes, they had the goals of, you know, looking great. They had the goal of eating with the right people, you know, having all that political and social status. They, they desired all that. Those were their goals. Their goals were to have the appearance of being popular and righteous in public. They had all these goals, but nowhere among them is there an honest pursuit of God. They're not running their race well. We look down here at this widow. The only goal we see for her is that she is looking to, to run her race well before God. And you know, fascinating about this is Jesus doesn't speak to her directly. Jesus doesn't go over her and tell her something like out of the Beatitudes saying, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. He doesn't say to her, you will receive, you know, tenfold, a hundredfold, maybe sevenfold. He doesn't give her any number on how much more money or treasure or riches or wealth she might receive in heaven. He doesn't even tell her, you know, you've lost your husband. You'll receive mother, father, brother, sister more in the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say any of that. She gets no promise of a reward after the fact, nor does she get a promise of reward beforehand. She does this simply out of the goodness of her heart, and there's so much that we can learn from this. Now, Christian living, if we understand what real holiness is, what it means to actually run our race well, to have good and proper goals, then we need to understand what Christian living is really all about. And one of the keys to living holy lives is to be critical thinkers who put things in their proper order. You see, wearing long robes is not in itself sinful. You know, being a scribe is not in itself sinful. It's actually, these things can be good. But they have to be put in their proper order. Having a good seat at the synagogue is not sinful. Having a place of honor at a banquet is not sinful. What is sinful is when you elevate these things above the pursuit of God, when you take them out of their proper order. And you see, many things in Christianity, they either seem contradictory or they seem ludicrous or crazy when you take them out of their proper order. And in our modern world, one of the ways that the good virtues of God have been replaced with the fake virtues, the garbage and trashy goals of the world, is that the order of God's kingdom, the order of God's creation, the order of God's church have been disrupted. Let's talk about some of the paradoxes we have in, in Christianity and how they really are just questions of things being out of order. We think about the teaching that says those who seek to save their life will lose it, but those who lose their life for the sake of Christ will find it. We hear it said that those who seek to be great will be last, but those who seek to serve, they will be great. Those who suffer will find joy. And even the idea of those that love God first and then their neighbor second, they will actually end up loving their neighbors more than if they had placed their neighbors and their friends and their family above God. And the truth of this is, is that when we put God in his proper place, then we are able to step into God's goodness. God isn't a tyrant. God created us with a will that's a sovereign will. You know, one of the things you can take and put in your bank, put in your pocket, carry it around with you. If something asks you to give up your sovereign will so that you're no longer an individual who thinks and can make free decisions for yourself, they're evil, they're an idol, and they're from the gates of hell. Reject it. God himself does not ask you to throw away your free will. Because if he did, then he'd be a tyrant and there would be no love involved in the transaction. But God is not here just for petty little transactions. God is here for a loving relationship. God is here to say, I love you, and what I want to do 
is love you, that you would conform your will to mine, so that you would be a creature who can live, you can be free, you can think, your mind can be transformed. You're not conformed to the world anymore. You're thinking freely. You have discernment. You have grace. You have assurance. You have peace and joy. Your free will steps into good things because you have put me in the proper place. When we put God first, God can resurrect the dead. God is the author of life. Losing our, our body here on this earth is not as severe once we start to realize the goodness and the eternal beauty of God. Romans 8.13 actually embodies a lot of these seemingly contradictory statements. And it says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now again, the reason why things often seem like they're paradoxical or nonsensical is because they're taking out of they're taken out of order. And once we put things in their proper order, then they start to make good sense. And this is something very important to holy living and just general discernment, general critical thinking. God made us to be people who critically think. And the reason why a great many things in our world, these virtue scams, are able to, to take their root is because they take things out of their proper place. When we think about Adam and Eve there in the garden, Eve ultimately justifies eating the fruit. There's a statement in Genesis where Eve recognizes that the fruit is good for food. She sees that. It's the last thing she thinks before she eats it. Now, if you just think about fruit being good for food, this is something which is true. You know, fruit is good for food. You can go and you can eat an apple. You can eat, you know, a banana, whatever fruit you so desire. They are good for food. However, for Adam and Eve, the fact that they're good for food is beneath the law that God has put in place about this particular tree. And our modern world has given us some really, really terrible modes of thinking. And it says, well... If the fruit is not good for food, then the fruit is bad. It is evil. It is a connivance and you must hate the fruit. No, fruit is good for food. And even that fruit may be good, but it has its purpose. God says not to eat of this. There's an order of things. Recognizing that God said not to eat that fruit does not mean that all fruit is bad, nor does it even mean that that fruit is necessarily bad. It just means it has another purpose than for you to go over there and eat at your own will, on your own whim. But in our modern age, we're trapped in this really set of corrupt thinking where if something is not worshipped as a god, if you're not bowing down to it, you're not agreeing to it in its entirety and in the premise which it's handed to you, then you must reject it and you must be a, a total denier. We think about the SARS-2 um, coronavirus over the last year. A lot of people will say, well, if you don't want to bow down to everything the world is saying before you, then you must deny that it's even real. You know, when it comes to politics, we'll say, well, if you don't agree with this, then you must hate all of these people or you must think all of these other things. And it's, it's all really terrible modes of thinking that only cause more and more destruction. And God didn't make us to be like this. And what happens is our ability to reason with one another, our ability to pursue godly love, to actually have those upward aspirations that God wants us to have become really, really difficult to, to have in the world. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, it teaches an order of God's temple. It says, I will live in them and walk among them, and I will be their God. They shall be my people, 
Therefore come out from them and be separated from them, says the Lord, and touch nothing unclean. Then I will welcome you, and I will be your father, and you shall be my sons, says the Lord Almighty. Now in this passage, we've got Paul, he's putting together his own sort of poetic psalm. Paul is teaching us the proper order of how we get adopted into God's family, how we have those good goals, how we run the race well. Guess what? It's important that we touch nothing unclean. When the world wants to bow down to untruth, we can make the mature, proper order of things that says, hey, I'm not going along with your untruth. I'm not bowing down. I'm not putting on the the mark of the beast that you want me to. I'm not going along with this. I'm not accepting these terms. But I can love you and want you to come into goodness at the same time. And that's a really, really tricky thing that we've got to learn to do in modern Christianity. In modern Christianity, we've kind of forgotten that God made Adam and Eve fully in their image, and fully in, in God's image. There is this understanding that men are designed to be men and women are designed to be women. Those are two things which are absolutely necessary to carry out the human species. God made men to be high T. God made ladies to be aspirational, wisdom, wisdom bearers who who teach how it, it is to be godly and righteous. God created men to, to teach their children how to, to be strong and how to overcome. When we look at the great heroes and heroines of Scripture, God made men to, to stand firm, for ladies to be like Queen Esther who say, if I perish, I perish. I'm going to be the, the mother to my whole kingdom here. Even if I'm not their biological mother, I'm going to step into this. And then when people are actual parents, you know, Isaac and, and Abraham, the sacrifice of Isaac, Jochebed laying Mo- Moses down into the water as his mother, God designed us with a purpose that we would run the race well, and you cannot do that if we forget who we really are. And I bring up the, the inherent design of humanity because our modern world has forgotten what it means for for men and women to actually be righteous and to aspire to good things. And making women be more like men, everyone is made miserable. And making men be more like women, everyone is made miserable. And it is something which doesn't respect what people's individual characteristics actually are. It just creates chaos perpetually and perpetually. And it comes along as an aberration which destroys the love of God. Or it seeks to anyway. When we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves of every defilement of body and of spirit, making holiness perfect in the fear of God. I want us to hold on to that verse where it talks about being clean and perfect, and I want us to attach that to Romans, or not Romans, Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. So this is when Christ is about to reign for a thousand years. The judgment of the living and the dead is is coming near. And Jesus is resurrecting people to reign with him. So Revelation 20 verse 4, it paints a picture saying, Then I saw thrones, and those seating on the thrones were given authority to judge. And I also saw the souls of those who who had been beheaded for their testimony to Jesus and for the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. 
What we find here is an image of holiness in Re Revelation. God is not looking for people who are like the scribes, who get all the superficial things right. Instead, God is looking for people who will be faithful to the end, like the widow is. When Jesus resurrects these people here in Revelation 20, we can rest assured he's not resurrecting unholy people or unreliable people or people who are nominally Christian. He's resurrecting real holy people. And the only standard we get for holiness here is those who are willing to stand with Jesus in the final hour. And they were willing to, to see it through the end. Now that might seem simple as a standard of holiness, but it's actually really rare people will do this. A lot of people prefer to be the scribes who wear the right robes, they can repeat the right slogans, they can attach themselves to the right people when it comes time for banquets, they can have all the great stories, all the great biographies. But yet when the final hour comes, there are a lot more people who pretend like they were virtuous than those who actually are. When we look at the widow, and we compare her to this verse in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, which talks about making all things holy and perfect, to be someone who is cleansed from all things which defile the body. When we look at Revelation 20, she was willing to commit her life to God, just like those who were willing to be beheaded in rejection of the beast. Now, she didn't have the beast threatening her with the guillotine, but she did put her whole livelihood there. She did it not expecting anything in, in return. And this is what it takes to really cleanse yourself from every defilement of body and spirit. She set aside all idols. And when we look at Jesus on the cross, we, we really do find again this standard of holiness that says, are you willing to stand next to your Lord? Are you willing to set aside all idols? And anything can be an idol. There's no magic rules. Church itself, strangely enough, can be an idol. And what I mean by that is when you're going to church for the wrong reasons, but you really like going to church for the wrong reasons, that can be corrupting too. When people want to take and abuse the name of God, that can become idolatrous. When instead of rather serving God, they take and they twist and contort Scripture to lie and bear false witness, you know, that, that becomes idolatrous pretty quick. There's no magic rules about what can and cannot be an idol. God alone makes the good. What we find here is a woman willing to stand firm with Christ. And when we look at Jesus on the cross, there's about a handful of people who stand with him. If we were taking interviews, you know, we take interviews to say, who will our new pastor be? Who will our new employee be working somewhere? Who do we want to, to babysit our kids? We take interviews for a lot of stuff. If we took and interviewed Nicodemus, or Joseph of Arimathea. These are the two men who stay with Jesus. They, they're with him when he is dead. You know, one of them, Nicodemus, came to Jesus at night. Joseph of Arimathea is noted as being a secret disciple. You know, would you have hired these two, expecting them to be the ones that would stay with Jesus at night? If you're looking for someone to be faithful, would you have hired this widow? Would she have passed the interview? She probably doesn't have a lot of stories of all the people she's discipled. She may not be able to quote scripture very well, may not even be able to read for that matter. 
The scribes, they can quote scripture all day long. They can talk to you about doctrine. They can show you all the people they've mentored, all the speeches they've given at synagogues, all the people who have stood for them and gave clapping ovations as they've prayed. If you look at their resumes and their biographies, you know, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, this widow, they probably don't have a really good biography. They're probably not that interesting to read about. Probably don't have a really long repertoire of how people have stood and clapped for them. You're not going to draw a big crowd. But yet, when the hour was late, when the rubber really, when the rubber really met the road, they were faithful. And the scribes were frauds. Revelation 20, when it actually comes to that hour, when the beast is beheading people, they may not have good temperaments. They may not know scripture as well as they should. They may not understand the Christian disciplines as well as they should. But yet, when it comes down to answer the question, who is Lord, the beast or Jesus? They know the answer to that question. As we close... I want us to realize that running our race well, having proper goals in the kingdom of God, is really important. Our world wants us to be people who virtue signal, people who virtue scam, who appear more virtuous than we are, but God wants us to be better than that. Let's say the Lord's Prayer together, shall we? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, power, and glory forever. Amen. With that, God love you, and have a blessed day.